Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Pim Fox, along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day, we bring you the most important, noteworthy, and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Bloomberg.com. All right, let's turn our attention now to why stocks go up and down. And joining us is Charlie Biederman. He is the president and chief executive of Trim Tabs Investment Management. Charlie, thanks for being here in the studio with us. Uh, I got to start with that simple question, but it's not really that simple because it doesn't it doesn't stick a lot of times. Why do stock prices move in one direction versus another? Well, the simple answer this year, say, is the central banks of Japan and the EC and Europe have been adding about 130 some odd billion every month in newly created money with which to buy financial assets. So everything else being equal, more money chasing an existing number of financial assets, the price of those assets should go up. It's that simple. Given that it's that simple and that companies have been buying back their shares, sort of adding to the demand and the supply of cash. Absolutely, yes. You would think that, first of all, any share buybacks would have the same effect. And second of all, that stocks could, should keep going up as companies continue to repurchase their shares. Uh, but you just did uh, some research showing that all share buybacks are not equal. Can you give us some color from that? Sure. Uh our fund, Trim Tabs, Float Shrink, ETF, ticker symbol, TTAC, in case anybody cares, uh, only, buys, sorry, only buys companies who are growing free cash flow and using a portion of that free cash flow to reduce the share count. Companies that borrow money to do buybacks, they don't outperform. If you look at various buyback funds, they underperform our fund because they, a lot of those companies that they that do a lot of buybacks, they borrow to do those buybacks, and therefore the companies don't outperform, and the stocks don't do well. So there's a significant difference, I mean, between a company growing cash, free cash flow is the best metric there is. And if companies use a portion of the free cash flow to reduce the share count, that's a double good. So I guess that it's sort of less that uh, it matters what source of cash they're using than the companies just don't have as much free cash flow to to buy back their shares, correct? Well, I wouldn't trust a company that's not making cash and using the cash to buy back shares. It sounds to me like they're more interested in the stock price than they are in the corporate results. Uh, You know, companies that have no choice like IBM with there's no growth, revenues have been shrinking and they keep they've reduced the share count by 50 percent and the price hasn't gone anywhere. All right. So I want to just to go back to my more simplistic uh, description of why prices move. It's because of supply and demand. If you have a constant inventory and there's consistent and growing demand for that same inventory, the value of the inventory is going to go up, the value of the stock price. If no one wants that inventory, the price is going to decline. If that's the case, why are not why are not corporate insiders buying their own shares? But at the same time, you see that cash flow is growing for S&P 500 companies. If they're growing cash, why aren't they spending it? Good question. So I've been looking at 
Corporate cash flow has been rising in aggregate, and corporate buying, announced buybacks, announced share, uh, cash takeovers. I mean, even with the, Wal- the Walmart as an exception and the $100 billion for banks as an exception because of the regulatory relief, uh, with those exceptions, announced corporate buybacks have been shrinking while their cash flow is growing, and insider selling is spiking. And we're not, and and also companies are reducing capital expenditures. There's only one logical conclusion I make, and that corporate America is scared of Donald Trump, and they're unwilling to invest big money into the economy and into their shares, given the risks that are going on. I mean, yes, we we track real-time data. Wage and salary growth has been rising faster this year than before. I really think that's due to, one, removal of as many regulations as possible, freeing up small business to actually get stuff started. And two, a lot of small business America are definitely firm believers that Donald Trump is the miracle man. And uh, so I think that's the only tailwind we've got. We have uh, global commodities are in a recession, oil, metals, all prices have been trending lower. Automobiles, I say automobile industry globally is in a recession. There's way too much excess capacity. And the housing market is not doing well. I don't believe that there's a shortage of supply, which is why sales are down. Sales are down because demand is down. So how do you square this with how you invest? I mean, it sounds like you're pretty bearish. No, well, except as I said to begin with, when, when banks are adding to the amount of cash available to buy shares, the market is not going to go down. And I'm 100% bullish in my holdings, even though some point in the future, um, things will not do well. But when, I don't know how long that's going to happen. How long right. is this going to well, take? We'll, we'll continue this conversation. Uh, Charlie Biederman, founder of TrimTabs Asset Management, talking about what companies are doing with their cash. And this has definitely been an ongoing question, especially as uh, when Charlie pointed out that share buybacks have gone down. You have seen cash go up. And not only that, uh, but Bloomberg uh, published a story yesterday showing that the volume of bank loans uh, is expected to grow at the smallest pace in years uh, in the third quarter adding to potential uh, pressure on their balance sheets, but especially as, as companies uh, fail to aggressively expand. I want to con- continue, continue our conversation with Charlie Biederman, founder of TrimTabs Asset Management. And when I think of TrimTabs, I think of uh, really great flows data, which give you a sense of where the money is going and where it is leaving. And Charlie, I'd love to get your sense. Uh, we were talking uh, offline that it isn't flowing as much toward U.S. equities as many people think, uh, and yet the money just keeps flooding into fixed income. Can you give us a sense of how much this is the case? Well, since the start of the year, there's been a consistent outflow from U.S. equity mutual funds. And there's been a, a, a less, there's been an inflow, but a smaller inflow than the outflow into U.S. equity ETFs. So that says that money might be going from active management to passive, and any new money that's going in, uh, going in passive is going, you know, going into ETFs. So, you know, it's interesting. We're seeing, and where's the money going? Well, it's going into bond funds as well as some money going globally. You know, some of the uh, 
markets that are doing the best, riskier markets. I don't know. Players like to play. Gamblers like to gamble. And so there's a lot of money going offshore as well. But what's interesting to me is like we're talking, there's no new money from individuals. Corporations are buying less so far this year. And if it wasn't for the central banks, we would be in big trouble. I mean, it wasn't for central banks. They're the only source of new money with which to buy stocks. Uh, let's just talk about briefly just stocks in uh, the uh, ETF, in the trim tabs uh, AC, right? TTAC is the symbol. Correct. And uh, it's up 16.8% so far this year. Uh, S&P 500 up 13 uh, and a quarter, uh, three quarters of a percent. So well done. Uh, looking at the stocks, though, do you even care what the stocks do? Not really. You don't. So you don't care whether you're long Cognex, Stamps.com, and Match Group. You just want them to have certain characteristics. We want it to have growing free cash flow and use a portion of it to reduce the share count and where they don't increase the debt-asset ratio, meaning they have a strong balance sheet. Okay. All right. Just wanted to check. La- last question to you, and just briefly, because I know that you've spent a lot of time. You lived in Santa Rosa, California. We've yes. been tracking the wildfires that are there. Uh, what do you know? What can you tell us? Well, the house I raised my son is gone. The whole neighborhood where we, uh, for 20 years, uh, the golf course, uh, country club down the road, a half a mile, all gone. And I, my in son, Santa Rosa? In Santa Rosa, California. My son just told me that. I didn't know until this, till right before I came in here. that our And fortunately, we sold the house a couple of years ago, but still, the memories are gone. Yeah, well, it's a it's a tragedy that uh, is affecting a lot of people today as we look at images of a completely decimated uh, suburban neighborhood. Thank you so much for joining us, uh, Charlie Biederman, founder of Trim Tabs Asset Management, joining us here after flying from Hawaii. I'm impressed that you came to New York from Hawaii at all. Right now, I want to take a look at who's growing faster, or who is going to grow faster in the next couple of years, the U.S., Europe, or Japan. Our next guest thinks that Europe and Japan have the edge on the uh, the U.S. That would be Ron Sanchez, Chief, Chief Investment Strategist at Fiduciary Trust International, which has $78 billion in assets under management and uh, is a private wealth division of Franklin Templeton Investments. Ron, thank you so much for joining us. Um, I'm looking at the blended uh, average of analyst estimates for GDP in the U.S. uh, versus the Eurozone. And generally, economists think that the U.S. is going to grow faster than the Eurozone in 2017, 2018, and 2019. You think they could be wrong. Why? Well, the fundamentals in Europe are quite positive. And even if they don't grow faster than the U.S., they have the potential to grow for longer. They are definitely on a self-sustaining recovery Growth in Europe has been meager for five years. They've been rolling in and out of a debt crisis. um, And for the first time, um, they're moving past austerity. And so the fundamentals um, for the economy to have a kind of muddle through, meaning two, two and a quarter, um, are quite compelling. And we think that if we look out over the next couple of years, they can continue to grow at that rate. 
where here in the U.S., we've had about eight years of an economic recovery. Um, if I look abroad, um, I think it's, it's in the early cycle of an economic recovery. And so from a market perspective, I think there's a greater opportunity for price returns there where their profit margins are half, their return on equity is not quite as strong as the U.S., and, um, and valuations are a little bit lower. So from a market dynamic, um, I think there continues to be compelling opportunity and certainly in 2017, um, that has been the case. So you say that in Europe, they're moving away from austerity. What particularly are you pointing to uh, when you say that? And, and so they're, from a fiscal standpoint, um, they have um, really tightened up their, their, their budgets in response to the credit crisis. Uh, they spent a lot of money in, in Greece, um, and they haven't really developed pro-stimulus um, policies, and fiscal policy actually has been contracting. That's why monetary policy, meaning the, the European Central Bank, um, has set rates at zero because they haven't really um, been able to, um, they're trying to offset the lack of, of fiscal um, budgetary spending. And I think a lot of those pressures are starting to ease. Um, you're seeing a little capital investment come back. Um, and I think the prospects are are are, um, are quite reasonable in, in, in Europe, and the return profile looks attractive to us. So if you're holding U.S. equities, you should maybe rebalance and you should add some European equities. What would be the action that you would take? That is correct. And I think what we're experiencing is that investors have become preconditioned for the U.S. Uh, the U.S. has been the best economy since the credit crisis. It went through its banking reforms a lot faster. Um, companies tend to respond quicker here in the U.S. Um, interest rates were low, and companies um, in the U.S. have really, uh, really benefited. And again, you see that in the return profile. It has been the strongest return profile. And I think the opportunities for the first time now um, are in global resynchronization outside of the U.S. But would that be, I just want to make sure you're not chasing the return. Right. I mean, because, you know, that's always the issue. Right. Now that everybody knows exactly what it is and it's been articulated, as you described, I would be, whoa, wait a minute. This is already out there. All the money's already been made. Or is it just the easy money's been made? I think the easy money has been made. Um, but investors should always have a, a global diversification. Uh, they shouldn't rely on one economy, even the sure. largest economy. And so when I look outside the U.S., I, I think there's a greater trajectory um, from Europe. If you look at emerging markets, they just emerged from a recession uh, in 2014, 2015, and early 16. And so the growth prospects in the emerging market um, are starting to reaccelerate. I wouldn't describe the economic backdrop as robust anywhere. That's not our central thesis. Um, but a broadening out um, of and a global resynchronization um, and an increase in trade activity um, is definitely taking place in 2017. And I think the return profile across the board um, has has started to uh, to show that. So when did you shift your thesis, and what did you advise clients to do with the mix of their investments as a result? So you started to see um, an improvement in economic activity um, in the second half of, of 2016. Um, once commodities started um, to improve, um, you saw a lows in interest rates. We saw a broadening out, and that broadening out has continued. A little bit of a hiccup around Brexit, but that actually, in hindsight, turned out to be the turning point. So you haven't changed your thesis since the second quarter of 2016? That's right. Well, we continue as we get confirmation of our economic thesis, we continue to increase uh, our allocation outside the U.S. So how much have you increased it uh, today, for example, versus the second quarter of 2016? About 15%. Um, so we're up to about a blend now of U.S., about 75% of our portfolios from a global perspective. 75 are in the U.S., 
25 are outside the U.S. And back in the second quarter of 2016? That was 10 or 15%, and so a meaningful increase. Can you speak a little bit about Japan, obviously outside the United States, but there is a snap election that has been called, and this could throw into question Prime Minister Shinzo Abe's Abenomics, as well as uh, end his role as the leader of Japan. So certainly political uncertainty, both here last year in the U.S., um, you saw it in France. Um, again, we'll, we'll see it um, with Theresa May um, and, and here uh, with Abe. Um, remains a, a fair amount of uncertainty, but having said that, um, we think he will prevail. Um, he's quite popular there. Um, and at the end of the day, um, it comes back to the economic fundamentals, and we have six straight quarters of economic growth. I think it's the fastest um, and consistent growth they've had in two decades. See, I thought you were going to tell me that the Bank of Japan basically owns or sets asset prices because they own so much of the Japanese stock market through exchange-traded funds, and they own so much of Japanese government debt. They're the price setter. That is absolutely correct. They target um, their tenure at zero, um, and we think that uh, when you look around other central banks that have influenced their capital markets. I mean, the U.S. has done it. The ECB has done it. um, And so has the Bank of Japan. Um, And they've done it to a great extent. And not only are they buying U.S. Treasury notes, they actually, to your point, are are buying the broader index. And I think they own a fair amount of of every major company, uh, Japanese company. um, They own, I think, upwards of 5%. And so the technical support for that market, in addition to the economic fundamentals, and a return profile that is way less um, than than other markets. Um, again, we think there's opportunities in the, in Japan. Just just real quick, I'm wondering. You know, the second quarter of 2016 was before the election in November. Your thesis didn't change after that at all, did it? No, it did not. Although we became uh, more encouraged for the prospects for the first time of of um, pro growth policies coming out of Washington, markets have really relied on monetary policy, not fiscal policy, and so we've had a um, a greater conviction ar- around our economic fundamentals, as you well know, in 2017 that has not yet panned out, um, and there are prospects that maybe in 18 we start to see some fiscal stimulus, um, but we're comfortable with the underlying trajectory of the economy. Ron Sanchez, thank you very much. He is the chief investment strategist, Fiduciary Trust International, $78 billion in assets under management. It's the private wealth division of Franklin Templeton Investments. All right, let's turn our attention now to another giant consumer products company. This is the the retailer Walmart. And helping us to understand this is Poonam Goyal, our Bloomberg intelligence analyst and expert when it comes to all things retail. Poonam, uh, you know, we've been hearing this story about how they're going to add 1,000 online grocery locations. They're going to open, what, 250 uh, stores outside the United States. Uh, They're going to buy back $20 billion in shares. Uh, is is this first of all? Is this all a done deal? I mean, can they just say they're going to do this and it's going to happen, or is this relying on on future results? No, I think I think what they've said is going to happen. You know, buying back twenty billion dollars in shares is under their control. Opening stores, I'm assuming they already have Lisa signed or close to having the locations um, done. And then in terms of growing online sales, forty percent next year. 
that could be a wild card. It could be better. It could be worse. But that's still a pretty aggressive and good number for them to chase um, going into next year. Poonam, I'm struck by the cost of all of this to buy back uh, $20 billion of shares and also to open all of these stores and also to invest in the distribution uh, software and personnel necessary to really build out that online presence. That's all expensive. Is it going to cut into their earnings more than people are really pricing in right now? No, I don't think so, because a lot of it is coming out of their CapEx, and their CapEx has been relatively flat on a dollar basis um, uh, for the past few years. But there are shifts in CapEx. So you heard them say that new store growth next year is going to slow, in the U.S. especially. They're only going to be opening about 15 super centers next year. So, you know, you know, there's money coming out of some places and going into other places. The focus right now is clearly on digital in the U.S., and um, it needs to be because they need to compete with Amazon. Well, you mentioned Amazon. The shares of Amazon are taking a hit. They're down a little bit more than a half a percent right now. $983 are down more than $7 a share. Poonam, uh, do you think that in a way Amazon's purchase of Whole Foods has brought on a more direct competition with Walmart in an area that Walmart is already very good at, groceries? You know, yes and no. Keep in mind that Whole Foods only has less than 400 locations in the U.S., and they're probably targeted more towards the upper income demographic, whereas Walmart, with thousands of of centers in the U.S., they, they target kind of everyone and mostly middle America. So, yes, there's some overlap, but not so much still. But I'm struck by Target because Target's been a loser as Walmart has improved its salaries for uh, lower income workers and uh, has expanded more online. And yet its shares are up a little bit. How does this play into Target's strategy or is that just a completely separate story? So Target's a little different. Um, Walmart, more than 50% of their revenues come from grocery. Where Target, it's still under 20%. So Target is not a grocery retailer. Grocery helps them bring in traffic, but that's not their main line of business. You know, they're more known for their apparel, their kids, their baby, and their health and wellness. So I think it's a little different. Yes, Target needs to step up its effort on grocery and digital to get traffic, which is what everyone in retail is focused on. It's all about traffic and grocery helps with traffic. Poonam, tell us about this smart cart system that came with the Jet.com $3.3 billion acquisition that Walmart did. has to do with uh, the way that you pack your items online and maybe even using a debit card rather than a credit card. Yeah, so it's it's interesting. You know, they said it'll move over next year. And a lot of what Jet has in terms of technology, you know, Walmart will adapt. But essentially, if you're buying, let's say, multiple items, they can price it, they can pack it, you can choose to pick it up in-store, which they'll offer savings on. Because keep in mind, the last mile is what costs the most in terms of online delivery fulfillment. So just packaging everything together will help them with the bottom line. Well, I'll just mention quickly that, you know, they also said that they're going to hire 2,000 what they call category specialists. They're going to oversee all aspects of a particular product line. So if you want to know what the best food, plastic food bag is, they're going to have someone there or maybe even, you know, treadmills. Plastic food bags or treadmills. Experts. Pretty, pretty. <laughs> 2,000 people. Poonam Goyal, thank you so much for joining us. Poonam Goyal is a senior analyst in U.S. retailing for our own Bloomberg Intelligence and Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Pim Fox. 
I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.